Good morning to you. Take your Bibles and look with me at Luke chapter 11, where we have been studying the life of Christ, and <clears throat> where we know last week we finished uh, at least uh, the opening section of these last verses of Luke 11, and Jesus was at a brunch with a Pharisee. And so we're going to resume our study and do part two in this particular section. In the, in the famous classic from John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, he, at one point in the book, if you've read it, he introduces someone he calls the parson of the parish, whose name is Mr. Two Tongues. Mr. Two Tongues. Bunyan, as you know, created an allegorical person whose obvious trait was duplicity. He was duplicitous, and a basic definition of duplicitous is to, to speak or act in two different ways to different people concerning the same matter. That's a basic definition of what it means to be duplicitous. In the same church congregation in Bunyan's allegory, he had created another character called Mr. Smoothman. Mr. Smoothman is someone who had mastered the art of manipulation. Also in Bunyan's allegorical church was Mr. Anything. And Mr. Anything was like a chameleon, we might say. It was someone who... who um, tries to mask who they really are and adopts another persona to fit any situation, depending on the context, just to fulfill their own agenda. And then Bunyan also introduced Mr. Facing Two Ways. Mr. Facing Two Ways is a classic hypocrite. It's a person who wears a mask. All of the characters in, in this particular congregation were people of duplicity. They all wear a mask. Mr. Facing Two Ways is probably the classic definition of the hypocrite. In New Testament Greek, the, the word is the same word from which we get our word hypocrite. Hippocrates, a hypocrite. Hypocrisy. That's our English word for it, and it literally means a pretense. Or to wear a mask, or to put on an outward show. In a generic context, it, it, it might refer in secular writings to someone who did a theatrical performance of some kind, some production, where they were acting, taking on someone else's character traits just to be a part of a theater. But the New Testament only uses the word in a, in a negative connotation, describing someone who appears to be one thing but is really hiding the reality. That is the hypocrite in the New Testament. God, by the way, uniquely despises this particular character flaw. And as we've seen in this recent study of Luke 11, Jesus reserves his most scathing rebuke for a particular kind of hypocrite, the religious hypocrite, the spiritual hypocrite. God's strongest warnings of judgment coming from Jesus' lips. You know, everybody sees Jesus as this soft, compassionate man. And of course, he was those things in perfect measure but strong warnings of judgment are spoken by Jesus against religious leaders because those religious leaders claim to be worthy leaders of God's people, and yet they're phonies. And so in their hypocrisy, they lead people who are unsuspecting down a path into ruin. Religious hypocrisy is the most sinister kind of evil because it fools the vulnerable. It preys on the vulnerable who then follow the duplicitous leader into destruction, to the same evil that the leader is practicing behind the scenes. In fact, God hates this sin so profoundly that he spoke of this particular sin in the life of the most notorious mask wearer there was, Judas Iscariot. This is what God said of Judas Iscariot. It would be better off if he had not been born. 
It's a reference to the hypocrisy of someone who would be in the life of Jesus as close as you could be and a pretender so good at it that the other disciples did not have a clue. It's interesting that false teachers in the scripture receive pretty scathing rebukes, maybe of the highest order, short of what God reserved for Judas. Jude 1.13 says that false teachers have a blackness reserved for them forever. But of Judas, Jesus said, beware or woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good if he was never born. Just within days of his crucifixion, Matthew records that Jesus went up into the temple and he, he met with the Pharisees there or they were there as he was speaking in the temple and he pointedly unmasked these leaders right in front of everyone for their gross hypocrisy. And he bluntly denounced them using language that in modern parlance would sound something like, you are incurably cursed. Woe to you, he said, and it was like saying cursed upon you. Incurably cursed is your life for the way that you live. And Matthew 23 records that he on the Temple Mount he said 13 times, woe to you. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, experts in Mosaic law. Woe to you, Pharisees, the ones who, who are so meticulous about all the standards and traditions so that you can parade yourself as more righteous than everyone. Woe to both groups because you're hypocrites. He said it eight times. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, one and all. By the time Jesus got on the scene, Israel's leaders were wearing masks and leading people astray. It was devastating. As I said last time, spiritual hypocrisy is the deadliest enemy of the gospel. There's a reason for that. The reason it's the deadliest enemy of the gospel is because it can have such wide influence. And what you have at a, at a level of leadership when someone is that hypocritical is you have someone who can lead other people astray in this main sense. Here's a fallen human being pretending not to be fallen. Here's a fallen human being pretending not to be a sinner when the Bible says all have sinned. Here's a fallen human being, a sinful human being, guilty before God like every other human being, and they are saying that they're not, in fact, unworthy. They are worthy. They're not a sinner. They're morally worthy of God's notice. If that starts to live in someone's life and it starts to become acceptable, they can become a guru of entire generations of unbelief. Entire cultures can be lost. Because when those such people make it into leadership, the spiritual darkness settles in. And so in our study of Luke 11, we find Jesus at this Pharisee's house having a mid-morning meal and it's different than he'd had in meals before. When he went into Simon's house back in Luke 7, he used this ex-prostitute as an illustration to Simon of how Simon had hypocrisy in his life. But it wasn't a scathing rebuke like you see here in Luke 11. By the time he gets here, he's just months away from his crucifixion. He's headed to Jerusalem to do the deed and save us from our sins. And he is invited to this mid-morning meal. But something's got to be done. Something has to be said. This is going to be a different episode. Why? Because you remember just previously when Jesus had cast out a demon, they said he does all of those powerful displays because he's satanic. You can't then have a Pharisee in the crowd saying, you know, you are satanic. You're possessed by Satan and you do your power by Satan. By the way, would you like to have brunch? <laughs> Something has got to be said here. 
And so this is a different scenario. And because the Pharisee had invited Jesus to brunch, but had made such a bold accusation prior, Jesus is going to unmask him. You remember verse 37, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in, and he reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw the the uh, fact that Jesus didn't ceremonially wash. When the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. You remember I said to you that the Pharisees had created the tradition of ceremonially washing so they could appear spiritual and holy. It was all pomp and circumstance, but Jesus didn't do it. And so there must have been contempt on the Pharisees' face, sort of disdain, maybe even moving away a little bit, maybe even looking at him with that, that condescending look. Oh, I see. The Lord just immediately said to him, Now, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you're full of thievery and wickedness. You foolish one, don't you know that he who made the outside made the inside also? In other words, you're a solidarity. You can't treat the outside and not deal with the heart. God made them both. You're going to answer for both. You have an appearance of moral uprightness by your little tradition and your ceremony by which you then separate yourself from others who don't participate in your traditions. You meticulously keep this little tradition and when I don't do it, you look at me with condescension. But you're not dealing with the inside. You're just cleaning the outside of the plate. Inside the cup and the plate, it's just still scum. And you're a fool because if you imagine that God isn't going to judge both the outside and the inside, you have made a grave error. If you think you can dress up the outside and not deal with the heart, you have a serious blindness problem. I love what Ken Hughes said about this. He said, this Pharisee's freshly washed hands contradicted his unwashed heart. That's right. It's well said. You say, well, pastor, I'm not trying to earn my way to heaven, so I'm not that kind of Pharisee. I'm not wearing a mask of self-righteousness. I've given my heart to Christ. I'm forgiven in Christ, and I'm striving to live for him. Well, if that's the case, indeed, then if you're in Christ, then these strong words to the Pharisee are not intended to unmask some phony religion on your part, perhaps. On the other hand, some might be here who say that very thing. No, I, I, I'm not trying to work my way to heaven. But you might already be so self-deceived that you're blind to your own spiritual hypocrisy. Maybe you do wear a mask. Maybe you never deal with the heart. Maybe you've just dressed up the outside. And you've made it convincing enough to yourself that it's real spiritual substance and real countenance, real love for Christ. Jesus' words might be specifically for you. If you're sitting there saying, no, I'm a Christian. I don't trust in my own righteousness. Therefore, this text is not for me. Don't, don't close your listening ear just yet. Christians can fall into patterns of hypocrisy, can't we? After we come to Christ, we can, we can act like Pharisees. We can sort of become self-righteous in the old ways, can't we? Do we not at times dress up the outside and ignore the inner life of sin when God is trying to convict us of some issue? Or what about we find ourselves sometimes keeping up an appearance of spiritual maturity, but we're neglectful of a normal confessional life. All kinds of sin piling up that we never admit, never acknowledge, never confess. We can sometimes be proud while pretending to be humble. You don't believe that's a common sin in the church? <laughs> what about when someone sends a tweet out to the world that says, I'm so humbled at this amazing review of what I've written, and you retweet it several times. Sometimes we can even 
major on minor issues and then downplay the major issues as we'll see in this Pharisee's life in a moment. We can be like that sometimes. So let's see if any of these words of Jesus can apply while he's here having brunch with this Pharisee. Let's look at the hypocrite's stock and trade. I told you there are four facades. We'll get through two of them and deal with the other two next week. We have to slow this text down. These two first ones are out of the gate, just breathtaking what he says to this Pharisee. The first facade I told you was the facade of full obedience. It was the facade of full obedience, or we might say the the hypocrisy of selective obedience. Notice verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, there it is, you're incurably cursed, you Pharisee, because you, <clears throat> you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. Let's stop right there. This is a Pharisee who, like all the others, had had a careful and scrupulous way of participating in traditions and even some old covenant laws regarding the, the giving of part of the first fruits of his crops in herbs and vegetables and those kinds of things. And he chose to obey certain external requirements to the T while deliberately ignoring the other things that God has clearly commanded. Now let's just think about this for a moment. History records that the Pharisees were meticulous tithers. And in fact, some would suggest, and I think it's probably true, that the one thing the Pharisees themselves were most upset about with regard to the rank and file of Israel was that the Pharisees would take all these little tithing requirements and they'd publicly display how scrupulous they were, how meticulous they were in the giving of those tithes. And then they would look at the people who shaved the corners people who looked for loopholes in the tithing process. Now let's just clear up some ground here. What, what is a tithe? A tithe just means a tenth. And Israel <clears throat> annually would give two and a half, sometimes almost three tithes annually. So basically if you're worried about how the word was used when you grew up to talk about church giving, uh, just understand that tithing was for the economy of Israel and the temple service of Israel. It was God's people being taxed for the spiritual services and a few of the economic dynamics that took place in Israel. And so they gave the tithes. And in their case, it was nearly 30% annually. Nearly 30%. And that was different than the free will offerings that they gave out of their heart and out of their surplus to meet needs at an extra level, almost the way we do it in the church today. You give whatever's on your heart to the Lord. Um, sometimes churches are taught uh, about a tithe and then you got to give 10%. Well, I don't believe that that's required. Here you have Pharisees in the old covenant. Jesus is talking to them. They're still under the old covenant. There's no new covenant yet. None of the New Testament letters have been written about giving. So basically what you have here is Jesus saying, I know you're meticulous about giving to the temple service and some of the economics in the way the Old Testament law prescribed, and you've even added some of your own traditions to that. I know you've done that. It's prescribed in Leviticus 27. It's described in Numbers 18, described in Deuteronomy 12, these meticulous requirements of tithing your first fruits, even herbs and vegetables and those kinds of things. And the Pharisees were the best tithers in the business. And they had prideful contempt for the people because the people cut corners in the, in the taxation requirements of Israel. 
I know you cannot relate to cutting corners and taxes and finding loopholes, but they did it all the time. And the Pharisees couldn't stand it. And so what did the Pharisees do? Oh, they got more and more meticulous. They tightened things down. They scrupulously looked at every little herb and every little vegetable, and they brought it in a big display so that they could stand above the people and say, we tithe down to the letter of the law. You find ways to get around it. And Jesus just says to him right there, you pay the tithe of mint and of rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet, while tithing down to the detail, you outright disregard what? The two greatest commandments. You disregard justice, which is love to your fellow man, and you disregard love to God. You don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. First and greatest commandment. And you don't love your neighbor as yourself. You do not love treating others justly. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, the prophet said, to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. They knew this. Jesus says, you ignore that. Your mask is selective obedience. I told you that in the Midrash, they had... They had written 613 laws in addition. These were traditions in addition to the Old Testament law. So they wrote all these requirements. You say, why would they do that? Laws upon laws already that they were required to obey, which Jesus reiterates. Why write other ones? Listen, they didn't write those traditions because they wanted to add to their conscience. I told you last time, they wrote them because they were easier to obey and appear righteous. It was easier to bring your first fruits and your herbs and your vegetables in meticulous order, mark it out, show that you've measured it off, you've written it all down, you've checked off all your boxes, and then place it in the offering of Israel and stand back and say, see, I am careful to obey and adhere to all that's required. I'm careful. And Jesus says, oh, you're careful, all right. In fact, you should be careful because that's what you've written in the tradition. You should obey the very things you wrote. And the Old Testament law requires some of that. So you should be careful about that, he says, but you should not have neglected the other. What is the other? You should not have neglected the first and the second commandments. In other words, your mask is that you want an easier way to obey on the outside for appearances without having to face the sinful desires and attitudes on the inside. Oh, you walk into brunch here and you wash your hands in a spiritual display of ceremonially cleansing yourself, and that's a fast track in your mind to appearing more spiritual than others. But you didn't have to work hard at loving others. You didn't have to work hard at humbly serving others sacrificially. You looked at me with contempt would have been Jesus' implication. You looked at me with contempt because I didn't ceremonially wash. I could see it in your eyes and on your countenance. Where's your love for me? Where's your patience? Where's your kindness? Where's your mercy? So you wash, but you don't truly examine your heart before God to appear worshipful. You just carefully required, you know, carefully give, meticulously give the required herbs and vegetables to the nation's tithe collector, and then you hold yourself as the faithful obedience over the heads of all those who fail to tithe all that's owed. And you're not confessing your pride, your self-righteousness, or your selfishness with other more costly sacrifices. 
There's no need in their mind to ask whether they worship God with mere lip service, but Jesus points out that it's as obvious as sitting there eating a meal. Matthew 15, 7 to 9, you hypocrites, he said, Isaiah was right when he said about you, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Look for a moment at Romans 13 at this very issue. I mean, even in the New Covenant, when Paul describes how we're to behave toward one another, even ironically in a context about taxation and paying to the empire what we're supposed to pay them, He's just finished saying all, or, all governments are ordained by God in this chapter, so pay them what's due. And then verse 8, owe nothing else to anyone except what? To love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Look at this, verse 9. You shall not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Can you imagine somebody giving to some ministry somewhere, uh, working in some way, and then in their heart of hearts, ignoring the, the real substance of the Christian life, that which fulfills the entire law, summed up in two commands? Devote yourself to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? That's not sentimental platitudes. That's not just fuzzy talk. Those are commands from God, and this Pharisee was ignoring them. Jesus says, yeah, you ignore that stuff. What about you? You may not be working your way to heaven. You may not think that you are going to offer your righteousness to God because you've been covered with the righteousness of Christ, but are you selective in your obedience? Is your spiritual devotion to Christ a mask of some external thing which is easier to do than having to deal with what's in your heart toward God and toward others? Maybe you play an instrument in the orchestra which appears to everyone else that you love to serve Christ and his church. You're helping lead God's people in worship. But then scripture also calls you to humility. But you don't like it when all your practicing goes unnoticed and unappreciated. So you're tithing your music but you're disregarding loving God with all your heart and the humble use of your talents for his glory, not your own. Or perhaps you're the, you're the dad who faithfully scoops up his family to bring them to church, and so you tithe your attendance, not forsaking the assembly, but you disregard forgiving your wife for the, the selfishness expressed the night before. It's hypocrisy. Or about someone who, who glories in their church traditions. They may be good applications of the truth, but they're really not the truth. Applications have no authority. Only the truth has authority. But you've applied the truth a certain way all your life, and now it's become a tradition. And you uphold those things in your life, those meticulous little scrupulous externals, and you look down on others when they don't apply the Bible the same way. Are you not being selective in your obedience? Are you not being partial in your love of others? Aren't you treating others unjustly, which is a major issue, while you're glorying in traditional applications of Scripture, which is a minor issue? It's the same thing that this Pharisee was being rebuked for by the Lord. We can be selective. When we're selective about our obedience, we're choosing to conform to the easiest standards 
on the outside to appear spiritual while we're ignoring the two greatest commandments in all the Bible. When we do that, are we not the same? The scriptures are authoritative, beloved, and, and where it speaks to the substantive heart issues, it means it. Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of outward changes that the Bible talks about, but not before you deal with the heart. It is out of the mouth that the heart speaks. It is the inner life that's the issue. It's dealing with the hidden person of the heart that's of interest to God. The scripture is not a collection of precious moments sayings. It's not a sweet little list of vignettes that you can just sort of descend in and out of. These commands are our life. And the Pharisee had made his traditions and his extra writings and the outward displays the most important thing. He was appearing to be fully obedient but he wasn't. The scriptures are binding. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that when you get into the scriptures, it goes down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's where God wants to do his greatest work. Sure, you shouldn't neglect any of those ways that we can apply principles in scripture. You shouldn't neglect, neglect those. You should apply the scriptures in your life. Change the things that need to be changed, but not without dealing with the heart substance that's inside. So then Jesus deals with, right on the heels of that facade, a second facade. It is the facade of humble leadership. The facade of humble leadership. In our case, it might be just the facade of humility itself. Notice verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. I don't believe that woe is necessarily separate. I believe they're related. Basically, you walk around with your feet connected to all that is dead. You're dead. You're a concealed tomb. People, people don't see the indistinctness. It, you're unseen. You're indistinct. And yet it's hidden behind what? Behind your display, your public display. You love the, the praises of men. And yet your outward appearance is that you're leading God's people. The Pharisees were always trying to put on this pious look so that others would publicly honor them. They actually adored themselves, Jesus says. They worshiped themselves. And they wanted the synagogue seats that everyone else thought were reserved for the holiest leaders. That's what they wanted. I remember being at a, I was early in my Christian life. My wife and I found this church to go to that, you know, was part of the denomination I grew up in. And we found this huge center of town church and we went there and it was our first Sunday. It was a big place. And so we, we were all excited and kind of a buzz. I think they were going to do a family film series sometime midweek. So that, that was by, you know, a pastor we respected, Dr. John MacArthur. And so we thought, well, that'll be great. Maybe this is a place we can land. So we went to the church. We sat on the edge of the balcony in this big place. And, and then all of a sudden, everybody stood up. And we thought, oh, okay, it's time to stand up. So we stood up. Nobody had said anything, but the double doors popped open. And in came these, this row of leaders walking in. And the pastor was on the tail end of them in a white suit, <laughs> no less. And they walked all the way in front of the whole crowd and up the steps and onto these huge chairs on the platform. And I'm not 
suggesting that sitting on the platform would be wrong. I kind of grew up in a church denomination where that's where the pastors sat. And, you know, you've seen that on, in churches all the time. And maybe there's a few more formal high church contexts where that can happen. I'm not suggesting that's in and of itself sinful. These chairs and these guys were sitting in them. They, they were on thrones. I mean, it was a display and and everyone was sort of there to, uh, and, and maybe there were honest hearts in the room who, who just thought, hey, that kind of formality is respectful. But, but I wondered, you know, in a ministry like that, what, what happens to a man's heart with those kind of things? I would be very uncomfortable in that kind of dynamic, I'm not suggesting it's sinful, but I, I'm not sure I would want to pretend like my human heart could handle such a display. And yet the congregation, the culture had been trained to, to have a public honor that had very little to do with God's word and a whole lot to do with perhaps the, the whole ceremony of marching in and kind of marching up to these big, huge chairs on the platform. I don't know that I could sit on the platform because I don't want you to see the socks I'm wearing and be distracted. But it was just an odd thing and I looked at my wife and we thought, we, we're not, we're not going to be able to stay in this place. Here, Jesus says to the Pharisee, you, you actually love that environment. You love that environment. In fact, you like the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees gloried in going to the center of commerce in the city and noticing that others would kind of part and move aside so that the righteousness of the Pharisee could pass. He says... That he's not pointing out that the chief seats were a problem. You might have to put someone in a chief seat so they're noticed for the sake that they're the one who's going to stand up and bear some spiritual responsibility. We have conferences where we, we have guys and, and maybe you have a little bit of starstruck uh, in you where you come up to somebody whom you've respected and there's that moment there. There is respect. There is esteem. There is honor. It's not the existence of those things that's a problem. Jesus says you love it. You love the chief seats and you love the formal greeting of the highly honored. You love it. Matthew 23, 7, he says, you like being called rabbi. You like the, the titles that you have. Why? Teacher, you know, wise one, the one who can dispense wisdom. Come, my mental peasants, and I will give you the wisdom Mark 12, 38 says they like to walk around in their long robes. You know, they, they wore the garments, nothing wrong with priestly garments, but they liked to walk around in them. It wasn't as though they had to wear them to, to tell the spiritual responsibility and burden they carried. They, they wanted to wear them because it made them distinct from the people as if they in and of themselves were better. The religious garments of the day weren't the issue. Every culture has its formal wear to signify the importance of one context over another. Every culture has that. We all make those kind of choices. That isn't the point. The point is they like to walk around in it. Luke 20, verse 46 says they like the places of honor at banquets. Even if you get a meal, they want to sit in the place where they're served the food first and they're waited on hand and foot. This is who the Pharisees were. And the hypocrisy here, listen, beloved, is that you're humbly serving God or humbly leading God's people in humility toward the service of one another while you're actually glorying in being treated by others as worthy of service. There's the hypocrisy of it. Oh, I'm leading you people in being other-centered while they themselves receive glory from one another and want the others to serve them. This is what Jesus points out. 
Now, we've got to face the music here. We may not believe that God ought to take notice of us, but sometimes we act like other people should. Sometimes we act like other people should take notice of us. This is hypocrisy, and it is rampant in our hearts. We have to crush it. It's often unchecked in the church. And I've said to you before, in a, in a day and age with the technology we have, we become masters at self-promotion disguised as ministry. We have. Got to get our name out there. Yeah, but you obsess over form and leave the substance out. You obsess over looks and aesthetics, but don't deal with the heart. A ministry can have a, a great window dressing, but you go inside and they have all but gotten rid of what is most important as the word of God penetrates down to the heart level. And we say, oh, it's all for the advance of the gospel. Yeah, but you seem to hover over the finances of it and the profit you make from it. How can it be all for the gospel and about money when Jesus said you can't serve both? You will either hate the one and love the other or vice versa. Well, I'm just humbly adding my perspective to this current debate so that it will edify others. Yeah, but then why do you ignore challenges to your view and, and not get shaped by others and just hang around people that agree with you? What is that all about? You're not adding your voice for the sake of the church. You're adding your voice for the sake of glorying in what other people think of it. Oh, I'm just on social media for links to good articles and books. Yeah, but I noticed that you send out 15 pithy zingers a day and then retreat your own zingers. Proverbs 27, 21 says that praise tests a man. How does praise test a man? You get to find out whether you love it. You get to find out how much you love it. You get to find out how skilled you are at crushing it or how much you lack in discernment about it. All of us at one time or another have received a thank you. Well deserved, I might add, on a horizontal level. It's a great thing to say, hey, thank you for being useful. Thank you for your good hard work. Human beings ought to be just lavish in our gratitude for others and what they do and serving. And We ought to be lavish in those things on a horizontal level because we're all equal. That's that's worthy. That's, that's a great thing. And Paul even demonstrates that in Philippians 2 when he tells the church, hey, look, I want you to hold men in high esteem who've served you even so sacrificially that they might have lost their life, he says of Timothy and Paphroditus. All of us have received some of those things for a job well done. But striking the balance between humbly receiving a genuine compliment and seeking only the glory of Christ in receiving it, that is very, very difficult. Pharisees didn't care one iota about that. They loved the respectful greetings. They loved it. Why? Because deep inside, they loved praise. It made them, it, it affirmed what they thought of themselves. I am better I am worthy. I'm not a sinner. I'm not as bad as the Bible claims. I'm not as bad as this Jesus would-be Messiah claims. I don't need God the way he says. I'm not distant from God as others have claimed. I am holy. I'm holier than those. I sit in the respectful places. I get the respectful greetings. People move out of the way for me because they just want to have my holiness spill over on them. I remember one time I got so nervous when the, the British theologian N.T. Wright 
someone in an interview, a public, very public figure in an interview said, being around him, there was just this aura that came off of him. I felt it like a warm glow. I just got really nervous. I don't know what you felt, but it wasn't someone's holiness. In fact, the more someone has a spiritual responsibility for the larger, wider evangelical world and, and they're actually pure and holy, the more they shudder to even be imagined as someone distinct. Because they know the dangers to the human heart. Say, Pastor, how do I know whether I love the praises of men? Here's a few simple questions. Here's a few simple questions. On the one hand, do you withhold lavish praise from others because you have to have it for yourself? Do you withhold gratitude and praise from others? Maybe looking at it on the converse side, do you bait people to tell you compliments? You compliment them to flatter them so that they'll pay you compliments back. That's a tough one in our, in our human heart. I mean, if we're all honest, yeah, that's, we're, that's familiar territory for, for all of us, one degree or another. When you get attention, you got to really ask yourself in your heart of hearts, am I being tested by getting this praise, and do I, do I delight in it, in the horizontal praise, the applause of men? The Pharisees would go out into the public square, Jesus says, and they would put down their prayer carpet, blow their trumpet. Now they're going to do their whole holy moment of prayer. And Jesus says, they do it for the applause of men. And then he makes this statement. So they have their reward. There it is. You have your reward. Men clapped their hands for you. That's all you get. God owes you nothing. How about this? Are you uncomfortable when someone else is good at something? Maybe as good as you, maybe better. Does that make you uncomfortable? Maybe one of your peers? Maybe they do something better? Maybe you worked so hard behind the scenes at that conference. And when, you, when the pastor got the list of people to thank, he meticulously went through that list publicly and thanked everyone, and you got left out. What happens in your heart right then? How about, there you are sitting watching a baptism service and the, you spent hours and hours with that guy. He's given his testimony in Christ. And he talks about all the people that influenced him and you're not mentioned. And you're the main one. What happens in your heart? Oh, I just want him to be saved. I'm so thankful. Growl, growl, growl. You gotta, you gotta ask an honest question in your heart. What goes on right then? When that happens, are you a Pharisee? Do you love the respectful greetings? Do you love to hear your name mentioned so that other men and women can think something of you? Would other people describe you as self-promoting? Man, you have an opportunity. You're the first to promote yourself. You're the first to jump at the opportunity. You're the first to grab it. And you call it competitiveness, but it's really the love of praise, opportunism, self-promotion, Phariseeism, because you do it in the name of ministry, but it's actually all just really about a respectful greeting in the marketplace. Do you struggle to rejoice in the usefulness of others? Somebody else is used of God mightily, and they, they don't necessarily acknowledge you, or maybe they don't even know you, but they're used mightily in ways you'd like to be used, and God just seems to pour it out on them. 
Is there self-pity in your heart? This is all the seed of this particular sin of pretending to serve in humility while in your heart of hearts loving the opposite. It's hypocrisy, beloved. Romans 12, verse 3 says that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. What is sound judgment? Well, it's who I really am, who God says I am, a right assessment from God's perspective, a right assessment of my gifts, my talents, my skills, my areas of weakness, my limitations, what, what God has still to do to make me useful, how far I have to go, what I don't know, what I'm ignorant of, limitations, strengths, strengths given to me by the grace of God, the fact that the grace of God gave them, they're not mine, I didn't come up with them, I've accomplished spiritual things, but only by the grace of God. That is sound judgment. All of that is sound judgment. Anything less isn't sound judgment. And so he says, look, if you're going to not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, by the way, our culture has made that a virtue, thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think. If you're going to avoid that, you're going to have to have biblical judgment. What does God think of me? Who you are compared to everyone around you might spell a particular scorecard, but who we are compared to Christ, that's the scorecard. The only one that matters. Everything else is hypocrisy. And it's got to go. It's a facade. I love how Paul puts it so succinctly in Galatians 6.3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You say, ah, but, but what did he really mean? If anyone thinks he is something when he actually is something, then hey, he's something. No. No, that's not the interpretation. If anyone thinks he is something when every one of us is actually nothing. And we deceive ourselves. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We're to think so as to have sound judgment. So Jesus says to him right here at brunch, listen, Pharisee, you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. And actually, you're just a hidden tomb. Death is what you are attached to. You're surrounded with it. Everywhere you go, people, people end up going to ruin and dying. Behind you is a trail of graves. But they don't know it. They don't know that while you're doing ministry, you love praise. It's hypocrisy. We're so eaten up with this as an evangelical movement it's really, really tragic. The Lord doesn't smile upon these things as Jesus Christ didn't smile on this particular display from this Pharisee. What about us, beloved? We have, we have to examine our hearts. Today, perhaps, if you're here, you, you, you've, never, you've never imagined that you're so sinful that even your best day of righteousness will not be acceptable to God and you need a savior. Maybe you've never come to that place, but the fact is, if that's true of you, you are right at this brunch with this Pharisee. You're no different, even if you're not religious, even if you just ignore religion, even if you're not a pretender like him at his spiritual level, the fact is you're, you're no different because one day you're going to say, you're going to have to say before God, yes, I'm offering my best side to you and I hope it's enough, it should be enough, I'm worthy enough. 
And so in that manner, you're no different than the Pharisee who's trying to work his way to heaven. You're doing the same. All false religions are like that. And Jesus says it won't be enough. It won't be enough. Your best day of righteousness is nothing but a filthy garment, Isaiah said. It's not enough. And if you say, well, I'm not a sinner, that's proof then that you, are, you in fact are. You just, you just committed the, the proof of it. If you say, well, I've not sinned as bad as other people, it's irrelevant. You won't be measured based upon how badly you sinned compared with how many good things you do. You'll be measured upon whether you're perfect. And if you're not perfect in this life, you need a righteousness not your own. You've got to be covered by Christ. If you're not putting your faith in Christ and rejecting your own righteousness, you're no different than who's sitting at this brunch. So you're a hypocrite by nature. We're all hypocrites by nature. The only way you can, you can have that covered is by repenting and giving your life to the only man who never was a hypocrite, and that's Christ. Innocent, pure, holy, through and through was our Savior. If you offer your hypocrisy to God, you'll, you'll go into eternity Christless. But if, on the other hand, you're here today, you repented of your sin, you put your faith in Christ, we, we can't live like this Pharisee. We can't live in this hypocrisy, putting on these masks. Paul would say to the church, let love be without a mask, Romans 12. Let it be without hypocrisy. And so we got to deal with the facade of pretending to obey meticulously in the things that are easier and more external while ignoring the heart. And we got to deal with this facade of of humble service when we're not really humble, when we just actually like the praise of people. Well, we'll get to these, new, these two last facades next time, but you remember what they are, the facade of bearing the standard. Oh, this is the righteous standard. You better all be living up to it. Pointing out other people's sin while you yourself aren't willing to actually in your personal life or your heart do any of those things you require of others. You lord it over people and put things on their conscience. You're not willing to live. We'll deal with that next time. And then the facade of pretending to have a heritage. Ancestral reverence. Oh, we, we build the tombs for the prophets because we just, we just know they spoke to God's people and we're part of God's people. Yeah, but your fathers killed the prophets and you haven't admitted it. Your forefathers murdered the prophets and you act like you can build these tombs for them proving that, yeah, proving how they died. You even, you even describe how they were killed by a generation before you, but you act like you're not part of that. Oh, we wouldn't do that if they were here today. Yeah, you would because you'd seek to kill Christ. Gross hypocrisy. Do we do that same thing? Oh, yeah, we claim heritage. Oh, yeah, my parents, my grandparents, this, that. None of that will get you to heaven. All of that's just hypocrisy without a real, genuine walk with Christ. We'll look at that next time. Bow with me. Lord, these are straightforward words from you. Straightforward. Blunt. And you, you had to say it because at that point, the leadership was going to be leading entire generations into ruin if they were followed in all of their formality and pride, you had to unmask it. And the way that you did it and the way that you will eventually do it again just before your death, it was a grace for people around to hear it. Because you could have sent all of them to their Christless eternity and they would have been just. Just. 
But Lord, immediately upon the heels of thinking that, we know that it would have been just to do the same with us. We're all hypocrites by birth, by nature. We have to be brought to the knowledge of you and to come to you and say, I have nothing. I, I'm not righteous enough. I, I can't bring enough. I have no power. I'm all about me. Just to bring that to you in humble confession that we are sinners. We have sinned. That is our nature. And we are condemned. And, and if we're not perfect, we're going to go into a Christless eternity. And so we must put our faith in you. Lord, that's what you bring us to. You're a gracious God, a forgiving God. You will wipe away our guilt if we will come to you and turn from ourselves and just believe in your full payment on the cross and only in your payment, nothing we bring, and to trust in your resurrection for our power and life to live for you out of gratitude and worship. Lord, we're sorry that that though we know you, so many of us have given our hearts to you, that we still sometimes live like hypocrites. We sometimes live like phonies. We dress up the outside and don't deal with the heart. We act like we're humbly serving and we take credit for it. We glory in it. How wicked. Please forgive us for sinning against your name and your glory like that. We may not be condemned in eternity, but we certainly want a close walk with you, and we can't do that when we're wearing a mask. So keep us from such sins. Keep our church from those kinds of sins. Thank you for your instruction to your people. We ask for your grace upon our hearts as we try to walk in it. We pray this for your sake. Amen.